It's my turn to say good day and good evening, everybody. Uh, as you know, Carl is walking us through a series in which there are two, four, five parts. And he spoke to you last, last week about the subject of repentance. And, and when we have a look at the subject of repentance, it's sort of a starting point. From one point of view, it's a starting point. And then from there we move on in our Christian walk. The National Journal of the Australian Presbyterian Church is called AP. In the latest copy of AP, there is an article written by Dr Gary Miller, who is the principal of our theological college in Melbourne, in Sydney, uh, sorry, in Brisbane, in Brisbane. And the article is entitled, My Friend Just Became a Christian. Yay! What next? Now, this is where we are at the moment. When we have a look at the subject of repentance, that's through the whole process of who our sovereign God is to us. We bow before him and we start the Christian life. And so, what next? Well, the subject tonight is discipline. As we work through 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 13, then next week it will be authority and the next week it will be authenticity and the next week it will be obedience within the framework of sanctification. Repentance, then, what next? And so, as uh, Malcolm reads to us the scriptures tonight, you will see discipline coming up from time to time. And as Bill read to us the reading earlier, you notice so much about the subject of discipline. I was going to pray at this point, but I'm not going to, because I think that speak, O Lord, is such a wonderful prayer. I think we've prayed as we come to the reading of God's word. Our second reading from the Bible, there are two short readings actually that uh, Robert's going to speak about. First one come, brings us back to the early parts of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Going back to chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 5 through to verse 8. And the second reading will be from chapter 13. So 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And then we go off over to um, chapter 13 and verses 1 and 2. And Paul continues, This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it whilst absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Thanks be to God for this reading from his New Testament. Our little girl, Kathy, was seven years of age. 
Laurel was in the city of Makassar in Indonesia. I was in Jakarta for a conference and I took our little girl to Jakarta with me because that was the time when she, together with her friends, were going to jump on a Cathay Pacific 707 and head for Kuala Lumpur and up to the Cameron Highlands for the beginning of her public education at Chifu School. So she raced out on, on the tarmac and she went into the plane and I couldn't see her anymore. And then the plane took off and was swallowed up by a ravenous cloud and my little girl was gone. Now, it's interesting what happens to you there. I, I felt there was a lump in my throat about the size of a watermelon. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to be talked to. I just wanted to be on my own, my little girl, seven years of age. Well, after three months, she came back with all her friends. You can imagine what it was like at the airport that time. <laughs> Our little girl was home. She'd been home for a few days and she did something that I didn't particularly like her doing and I said, darling, don't do that. Guess what she did? She did it again. <laughs> so I said, hey, little one, let me show you another way of doing it. So she listened to me and guess what she did? She did it her way. I said, hey, Kathy, if you do that again, I'm going to have to smack your little bottom. Well... She did it again. So I said, Catherine, you know what it's like? Big title now. Catherine, come here. So she came across, and I put her into the appropriate position to pat her little bottom. And she turned her head round and she looked at me, and the tears were welling up in little eyes, and she said, Daddy, don't hit me too hard. I'm not used to it. <laughs> you said she'd been away for three months. Daddy, don't hit me too hard. I'm not used to it. And that became a saying in our family. So it doesn't matter who you meet in the family. Everybody knows that expression. Daddy, don't hit me too hard. I'm not used of it. Discipline. That's our subject today. Discipline is part of the process of sanctification. Now, there's two words there. Sanctification. I have no doubt that this was explained last week. Let me go over it. It comes from the Latin word sanctus which is very closely associated with holiness. And so, in the Old Testament, we read in Leviticus chapter 19, Be holy, says the Lord God, for I am holy. When we come to Paul, it says, It is God's will that we should be sanctified, be made holy, be set apart for holiness. Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctification, to be set apart for something special. And it can be things, it can be people. Well, that's sanctification. And we're dealing with the subject of discipline within the framework of sanctification. The other word is discipline. Now, please help me here. I'm going to read to you a definition of discipline, and I want you to nod if you like it and shake your head if you don't like it, okay? Discipline is the practice of training people to obey rules using punishment to correct disobedience. Again, discipline is the practice of training people to obey rules using punishment to correct disobedience. Do you like it? I see two heads going that way and a third head. That's good enough for me. I don't like it either. I'll tell you the reason why. 
Discipline is far, far more than patting a little one on the bottom. Some people tell us there's preventive discipline. I know a wife who, when the newspaper and the magazines are received into the home, she goes through them and tears out the bits that she doesn't want her husband looking at or her boys looking at. That's preventive discipline. We had a little three-year-older in our home on Monday and Tuesday of last week, the, oh, a niece and her little one called Eleanor, and these two things were down low, you see, where she could reach them. Guess what Laurel did? She got them off the low bench and put them up high. That figures, doesn't it? We call it preventive discipline. And then there's another kind of discipline, which is uh, some people call it supportive discipline, or it could, be, it could be sort of redirective discipline. That same little three-year-old, Eleanor. Uh, Eleanor brought her car- cra- crayons with her, of course, and when she saw the Pulse magazine, which is the magazine of the Church of New South Wales, immediately she wanted to scribble all over it. So I said, hey, take my finger. We headed for the study. We got a, an empty uh, or an old exercise book. We took it back to where her mum was, and I said, go for your life. You see... It was a redirection of what she was going to do. And then, of course, there's the corrective discipline, which is the, Daddy, don't hit me too hard. I'm not used of it. Now, so so you've got those two words. You've got sanctification and discipline is part of the process of it. Now, our Bible reading tonight, I'm not going to read all of it at the moment. I'm just going to read a part of it. This is my third visit to you. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Is it staged? But now it's come to the point where it's corrective discipline. Your General Assembly has a commission and that commission will meet on the 8th of December. And what's it all about? Well, there's a minister in another state who wasn't careful in the appointment of a youth worker and he didn't care much for the restrictions and all kinds of things for the protection of children and he wasn't very willing to accept the presbytery's counsel to him nor do some of us think that the presbytery handled the situation very well and so there has been an appeal to the General Assembly of Australia in respect to this particular issue. And so the General Assembly Commission on the 8th of December will try to, try to think through, OK, what do we do now in this corrective discipline? Uh, will it be rebuke and admonition or will it be suspension or will it be deposition? And that's the kind of thing that we have to grapple with. So what's the bottom line there? The bottom line is this. Your church is interested in following biblical precepts in respect to discipline within the framework of the setting aside of a people for God for things special to God. Now, why would your church believe that? Because that's what Paul is saying here, that discipline is necessary where there's recalcitrance and malicious sin. And why would Paul think it was important? Because the Lord Jesus thinks it's important. If you go to Matthew chapter 18, you have something like this. If you molest a little child, the best thing that could happen to you was that a millstone be hung around your neck and you'd be tossed into the ocean. Sounds like discipline, doesn't it? 
And then when you go to Matthew chapter 22, the Lord is helping us to understand that we must be clothed, we must be clothed in the right kind of way as we head in the direction of the marriage feast of the Lamb. So he tells the story of somebody who turned up for a wedding. He certainly wasn't dressed properly, the righteousness of Christ. And so the Lord Jesus says, look, what's he doing here? Cast him out. Or something very, very practical for all of us. The Lord Jesus, if your brother sins against you, talk to him. If he won't listen, take an elder with you. If he won't listen, report it to the church and let the church work it out. If he still won't listen, what do you do? Jesus says, tell him to go. The disciplines of the church. Now, things were not easy in Corinth. In fact, as I read John Calvin around the whole issue, he described some of the people within the church as people diseased and half-rotten, living dissolute and licentious lives. Not pretty, is it? But fascinatingly, with these people like that back in their particular culture in Corinth, there was a recognition of the fact that those kind of people were sort of representative of many people at Corinth. And so if you wanted to say something really derogatory about somebody in Jerusalem or up there in Ephesus, you'd say, you're a Corinthian. And so what were they doing? Taking each other to court, being unfaithful in marriage, there was party spirit, there was gut gluttony, far too many Big Macs, there was pride, I've got better gifts than you, there was party spirit, it was a mess. And Paul says, this is my third visit. On my second visit I gave you a warning, I repeat it again in writing, now the guillotine is about to fall. I will not spare those who sinned. Now, this had happened before. That's why we had those two Corinthian readings tonight. Because you see in chapter 2, there was somebody who had been disciplined and he caused a tremendous amount of grief within the congregation. And now Paul is saying, the punishment inflicted on him is sufficient. Now you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he won't be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow now affirm your love for him. You see, they'd been through the process. People could understand it. And now it's on again. There's three particular things that I want you to note here from this text and as we look at the subject of the discipline. First one is the church's discipline. The primary source of discipline, our discipline, the church's discipline, is from a heavenly father. If we go back to Exodus, Exodus, it's all there. If we go to Leviticus, it's all there. If we go to Deuteronomy, it's all there. And we've heard the words of the Lord Jesus. Now, sometimes we think that the Father's discipline of us is a bit rough. And then we think, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. God is treating you as sons. And if you were directed a difficult time that you're working through, and sometimes we do think exactly that, we're directed by the author to the Hebrews to that wonderful verse, just consider Jesus. 
Look what he went through, and then you won't grow weary and lose heart. The disciplines are the disciplines of a loving father. I had a phone call from one of our ministers during the week, and there was a sharp edge to his voice. He said, Robert, I have spent three weeks recently cleaning up somebody else's mess. I didn't comment. Then his voice softened. But he said, you know, as I think of what I've been through in those three weeks, I then remember what Jesus went through to clean up my mess. You see, learning at the hands of the Father. When I patted Kathy on the little bottom, not too hard, I assure you, what was the very next thing that happened? She was in my arms. That's just a picture of what it's like. The Lord takes us through his disciplines to help us to grow up. But all the time his arms are open to receive us. That's the kind of God that he is. Point number one, the primary source of the disciplines of life for us to help us to grow in the image of Christ is a loving heavenly father. Secondly, what's the authority for Paul in pressing ahead with discipline in this congregation? So the authority for it. Now, I know that Carl is dealing with this next week because that's sort of the second part of the... My friend, what has become a Christian? Yea, now what? So, authority for discipline. What is Paul's authority? I have to go to it because it's there in the text tonight. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, why did he put that there? Because when he thinks about the whole subject of discipline within the church, his mind goes back to the Bible. And his Bible, of course, was Old Testament. And when he goes back to the Old Testament, his mind flicks to this section of Deuteronomy. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he scratches his head for a bit and he thinks for a moment, okay, so who are the witnesses that gives me the authority to go ahead with this discipline? And I think it's spelt out in the text. I came once, you were all aware of that, we talked about it, didn't we? Witness one. I came again, I gave you a warning. Everybody knows that. Witness two. In the letter, I repeat the warning. Everybody can read it. It will be read in the congregation. Witness three. Now, with three witnesses, not only two, I can go ahead and do what I need to do. I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. And so, he's pressing ahead. Now, I ask again, what was his authority? His authority was the word of God, which Jesus says is true. And Paul is practicing it. And his authority is the Bible, his knowledge of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, and his practice of the Bible. And this allows him to act in the right way. Now, dear friends, we're facing decisions, and if you're mums and dads and all that, the whole question of discipline is coming up all the time. On what basis do we handle the disciplines of life and the discipline of children, all of those kind of things? For the secular world, it's, I make my decisions on the basis of what pleases me. 
But the Christian will make the decisions in respect to everything on the basis of what will please the Father, because that is sanctification. And the answer we must give is the Bible is our authority for the decisions that we make and the disciplines that we enact if we are in that situation. We look at Ezekiel, chapter 2 and chapter 3. He is faced with a tremendous mandate from God to be a servant of God in the midst of a rebellious people. And this is what we read. I'm sending you to that rebellious people, obstinate and stubborn. So eat this scroll. Feed your belly with this scroll. Fill your stomach with this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. And there's the picture, isn't it? It's sort of something like the silkworm who just continues to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and and fill his belly. This is a sort of picture. The silkworm kind of picture. And at the same kind of time we hear Amos saying, hey, there's a famine in this land. And it's not a famine for lack of water or lack of food. It's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, that was Amos' day. But, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, when we come to Australia, is there not a massive famine in respect to the hearing of the word of the Lord and allowing all that we are to sort of flow from that? I think there's a famine. And I think we should notice that we are very prone to being part of that famine because somehow the Bible... Yes, it's there, and sometimes we open it, or maybe often we open it. But when we have a look at eat the scroll, eat the scroll, get it right into your system, maybe we need to think a little bit further about how we handle the Bible. Because really, really, before we make any decision, shouldn't we be making it out of our knowledge of the Scriptures? Before we go anywhere, shouldn't we do the same before we open our mouth? Should we not race to the Bible? Because that is our authority. And we don't go there just because there's good literature there or good poetry. No, no, no. We don't go there to browse it because we've only got ten minutes and we must race through it. We don't go there to collect historical facts and that kind of thing. No, no, no. We read the Bible, if we're reading it properly, so that it will deeply, deeply go into our souls so that the whole of our being just oozes it when we open our mouths, when we make decisions, when we enact Discipline, Don't you think? C.H. Spurgeon was minister of what is now called the Metropolitan Tabernacle during Queen Victoria's time. He died in about 1897 or something like that. This is what he said. Listen carefully. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. Though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress without continually making us feel and say why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. Then he takes a deep breath and he says, I commend his example to you, beloved. 
And I want to stand up at the back of the church and say, I second the motion. I second the motion. Prick him anywhere. And his blood flows bibline. An older friend of mine said to me recently, I'm just beginning to feel that the Bible is getting smaller. And of course, you know exactly what he's saying. I know of ministers who change their Bible every year. Um, this one, many, many years, started to fall to bits. Many years ago, started to fall to bits. And so I took it down to a gentleman in Springwood, and I think he killed an Illawarra cow, and he, he made that beautiful cover out of it and pulled it all back into shape. I, I don't think there's a page there that's not marked in some way. So that when I want to get to Thessalonians, I go like that, and it opens to Thessalonians. And when I want to go to Matthew, I just go, and there it is, because it... it almost knows where I want to go. And if I need to go to Isaiah, I just flick back there and there it is. Oh, not literally. But I love the way this Bible almost opens up to me because this is the one that I use. And yet, I went to Ephesians just a couple of days ago to think something through for next Sunday at Wentworth Falls or the following Sunday. And I thought, I have read that a thousand times. I can almost say it by heart, but... Oh, how I needed to heed what it said again because I tried to look into it deeply. I just wish, I just wish I could be an Ezekiel and a Jeremiah who eat the scroll, you know, sort of the silkworm thing, eating, eating, eating. So it becomes so much part of me like Pilgrim's Progress. And I commend that. I commend that to you. That's the authority upon which we should operate. Finally, the Lord's discipline cannot be dissociated from self-discipline. It's like bread and butter, it's like socks and shoes, it's like knife and fork. And so when you come to Hebrews chapter 11, you find that there's a whole lot of people there who were disciplined by the Lord. And so if they were sitting over here today, there'd be There'd be Moses and Noah and Jacob and Joseph and Rahab and David and on and on and on and on and on. And if we had a look at them, we'd think, oh, what you people have been through. Was it all accidental? Was it all fate? Was it simply everything out of control? And they would have said, no, 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 no. No, no, no. The hand of a good God was upon us. And so the writer of the Hebrews in the beginning of chapter 12 says, just look at him, that cloud of witnesses. Now. Let us walk well. Let us walk well. Throw off all of the self-discipline words through Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to them. Throw off. Run. Fix your eyes. Struggle. Endure. Submit. Strengthen your feeble arms. Make every effort. Self-discipline, yes? Paul says, I beat my body into subjection. Now, this is all within the framework of God helping us to grow up, to declare far more through everything we are and do, the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in our saner moments, don't we say, I really did know to go, I did really need to go through that to help me to grow up into the image of Christ. Seeing we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that is set out for us, looking unto Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
etc., etc. That's where our focus is as we grow in him through the disciplines of the Father. I conclude. Gary Miller wrote the article, My friend has just become a Christian. Yay! Now what? And part of the answer is discipline. In the process of sanctification. Our gracious Father, we come into your presence thanking you that you're that kind of Father. And we know that you have to take us and take us through some of the difficulties of life so that we will learn more and more to say the joy of the Lord is my strength because I'm in such good hands. Help us not to be sorry that the Lord is walking us through deep waters sometimes because we know that his purpose is to make us more like Jesus. And he takes us through times of tremendous joy sometimes. And it's the peerless name in order to make us more like Jesus in whose peerless name we pray. Amen.